Chapter Ten of Indiana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. Indiana by George Sand. Translated by George Burnham Ives. Chapter Ten. For his part. It was neither in a spirit of bravado, nor because of the injury to his self-esteem, that he aspired more ardently than ever to Madame Delmar's love and forgiveness. He believed that they were unattainable, and no other woman's love, no other earthly joy seemed to him their equivalent. Such was his nature. An insatiable craving for action and excitement consumed his life. He loved society with its laws and its fetters, because it offered him material for combat and resistance. And if he had a horror of license and debauchery, it was because they promised insipid and easily obtained pleasure. Do not believe, however, that he was insensible to Noun's ruin. In the first impulse he conceived a horror of himself, and loaded his pistols with a very real purpose of blowing out his brains but a praiseworthy feeling stayed his hand what would become of his mother his aged feeble mother the poor woman whose life had been so agitated and so sorrowful who lived only for him her only treasure her only hope must he break her heart shorten the few years that still remained to her no surely not the best way to redeem his wrongdoing was to devote himself thenceforth solely to his mother and it was with that purpose in mind that he returned to her at Paris, and put forth all his energies to make her forget his desertion of her during a large part of the winter. Raymond exerted an incredible influence over everybody about him, for, take him for all in all, with his faults and his youthful escapades, he was above the average of society men. We have not yet told you upon what his reputation for wit and talent was based, because it was aside from the events we had to describe. But it is time to inform you that this Raymond, whose weaknesses you have followed, and whose frivolity you have censured, is one of the men who have had the most control and influence over your thoughts, whatever your opinions today may be. You have devoured his political pamphlets, and while reading the newspapers of the period, you have often been captivated by the irresistible charm of his style, and the grace of his courteous and worldly logic. I am speaking of a time already far away, in these days when time is no longer reckoned by centuries, nor even by reigns, but by ministries. I am speaking of the Martignac year, of that epoch of repose and doubt, interjected in the middle of a political error, not like a treaty of peace, but like an armistice, of those fifteen months of the reign of doctrines, which had such a strange influence on principles and on morals, and which may perhaps have paved the way for the extraordinary result of our latest revolution. It was in those days that men saw the blooming of certain youthful talents, unfortunate in that they were born in a period of transition and of compromise, for they paid their tribute to the conciliatory and wavering tendencies of the time. Never, so far as I know, was knowledge of mere words and ignorance, or pretended ignorance of things, carried so far. It was the reign of restrictions, 
and it is beyond my power to say who made the fullest use of them short-gowned jesuits or long-gowned lawyers political moderation had become a part of the national character like courteous manners and it was the same with the first variety of courtesy as with the second it served as a mask for secret antipathies and taught them how to fight without scandal and publicity we must say however in defence of the young men of that period that they were often towed like light skiffs in the wake of great ships with no very clear idea of where they were being taken proud and happy to be cleaving the waves and swelling out their new sails placed by his birth and his wealth among the partisans of absolute royalty raymond made a sacrifice to the youthful ideas of his time by clinging religiously to the charter at all events that was what he thought that he was doing and what he exerted himself to prove but conventions that have fallen into desuetude are subject to interpretation and the charter of louis the eighteenth was already in the same plight as the gospel of jesus christ it was simply a text upon which everybody practised his powers of eloquence and a speech thereon created a precedent no more than a sermon a period of luxurious living and indolence when civilization lay sleeping on the brink of a bottomless abyss eager to enjoy its last pleasures raymond had taken his stand upon the line between abuse of power and abuse of license a shifting ground upon which good men still sought but in vain a shelter from the tempest that was brewing to him as to many other experienced minds the role of conscientious statesman still seemed possible a manifest error at a time when people pretended to defer to the voice of reason only to stifle it the more surely on every side being without political passions raymond fancied that he was without interest to promote but he was mistaken for society constituted as it then was was agreeable and advantageous to him it could not be disturbed without a diminution in the sum total of his well-being and that perfect contentment with one's social position which communicates itself to the thought is a wonderful promoter of moderation who is so ungrateful to providence as to reproach it for the misfortunes of other people if it has only smiles and benefactions for him how is it possible to persuade those young supporters of the constitutional monarchy that the constitution was already antiquated that it weighed heavily on the social body and fatigued it while they found its burdens light and reaped only its advantages nothing is so easy and so common as to deceive oneself when one does not lack wit and is familiar with all the niceties of the language language is a prostitute queen who descends and rises to all roles disguises herself arrays herself in fine apparel hides her head and effaces herself an advocate who has an answer for everything who has always foreseen everything and who assumes a thousand forms in order to be right the most honourable of men is he who thinks best and acts best but the most powerful is he who is best able to talk and write as his wealth relieved him from the necessity of writing for money raymond wrote from a liking for it and he said it with perfect good faith from a sense of duty the rare faculty that he possessed of refuting positive truth by sheer talent had made him an invaluable man to the ministry whom he served much better by his impartial criticism 
than did its creatures by their blind devotion and even more invaluable to that fashionable young society which was quite willing to abjure the absurdities of its former privileges but wished at the same time to retain the benefit of its present advantageous position they were in very truth men of great talent who still supported society tottering on the brink of the precipice and who being themselves suspended between two reefs struggled calmly and with perfect self-possession against the harsh reality that was on the point of engulfing them to succeed in such wise as to create a conviction against every sort of probability and to keep that conviction alive for some time among men of no convictions is the art which most impresses and surpasses the understanding of an uncultivated vulgar mind which has studied none but commonplace truths thus raymond had no sooner returned to that society which was his element and his home than he felt its vital and exciting influences the petty love affairs that had engrossed him vanished for a moment in the face of broader and more brilliant interests he carried into these the same boldness of attack the same ardor and when he saw that he was more eagerly sought than ever by all the most distinguished people in paris he felt that he loved life more than ever was he to be blamed for forgetting a secret remorse while reaping the reward he had merited for services rendered his country he felt life overflowing through every pore of his young heart his active brain his whole vigorous and buoyant being he felt that destiny was making him happy in spite of himself and he would crave forgiveness of an indignant ghost that came sometimes and bewailed her fate in his dreams for having sought in the affection of the living a protection against the terrors of the grave but he had no sooner returned to life as it were than he felt as in the past the need of mingling thoughts of love and plans of intrigue with his political meditations his dreams of ambition and philosophy i say ambition not meaning ambition for honor and wealth for which he had no use but for reputation and aristocratic popularity he had at first despaired of ever seeing madame delmar again after the tragic ending of his double intrigue but as he measured the extent of his loss as he brooded over the thought of the treasure that had escaped him he conceived the hope of grasping it once more and at the same time he regained determination and confidence he calculated the obstacles he should encounter and realized that the most difficult to overcome at the outset would come from indiana herself therefore he must use the husband to protect him from the attack this was not a new idea but it was sure jealous husbands are particularly well adapted to this service a fortnight after he had conceived this idea raymond was on the way to lagny where he was expected to breakfast you will not require me to describe to you in detail the shrewdly proffered services by which he had succeeded in making himself agreeable to monsieur delmar i prefer as i am describing the features of the characters in this tale to draw a hasty sketch of the colonel for you do you know what they call an honest man in the provinces he is a man who does not encroach on his neighbor's field who does not demand from his debtors a sou more than they owe him who raises his hat to every person who bows to him who does not ravish maidens in the public roads who sets fire to no other man's barn who does not rob wayfarers at the corner of his park provided that he religiously respects the lives and purses of his fellow-citizens 
nothing more is demanded of him. He may beat his wife, maltreat his servants, ruin his children, and it is nobody's business. Society punishes only those acts which are injurious to it. Private life is beyond its jurisdiction. Such was Monsieur Delmar's theory of morals. He had never studied any other social contract than this. Every man is master in his own house. He treated all affairs of the heart as feminine puerilities, sentimental subtleties. Being a man devoid of wit, of tact, and of education, he enjoyed greater consideration than a man obtains by dint of talent and amiability. He had broad shoulders and a strong wrist. He handled the sword and the sabre perfectly, and was exceedingly quick to take offence. As he did not always understand a joke, he was constantly haunted by the idea that people were making fun of him. Being incapable of subtle repartee, he had but one way of defending himself, to enforce silence by threats. His favourite epigrams always turned upon cowhidings to be administered, and affairs of honour to be settled. Wherefore the province always prefixed to his name the epithet brave, because military valour apparently consists in having broad shoulders and long moustaches, in swearing fiercely, and in putting one's hand to the sword on the slightest pretext. God forbid that I should believe that camp life makes all men brutes, but I may be permitted to believe that one must have a large stock of tact and discretion to resist the habit of passive and brutal domination. If you have served in the army, you are familiar with what the troops call skin-breeches, and will agree that there are large numbers of them among the remains of the old imperial cohorts. Those men, who when brought together and urged forward by a powerful hand, performed such magnificent exploits, towered like giants amid the smoke of the battlefield. But having returned to civil life, the heroes became mere soldiers once more, bold, vulgar fellows who reasoned like machines. And it was fortunate if they did not behave in society as in conquered territory. It was the fault of the age rather than theirs. Ingenuous minds, they had faith in the adulation of victory, and allowed themselves to be persuaded that they were great patriots because they defended their country, some against their will, others for money and honors. But how did they defend it, those tens of thousands of men who blindly embraced the error of a single man, and who, after saving their country, basely destroyed it? And again, if a soldier's devotion to his captain seems to you a great and noble thing, well and good, so it does to me, but I call that fidelity, not patriotism. I congratulate the conquerors of Spain. I do not thank them. As for the honor of the French name, I by no means understand that method of safeguarding it among neighbors, and I find it difficult to believe that the Emperor's generals were very deeply engrossed by it at that deplorable stage of our glory. But I know that we are forbidden to discuss these matters impartially. I hold my peace. Posterity will pass judgment on them. Monsieur Delmar had all the good qualities and all the failings of these men. He was innocent to childishness concerning certain refinements of the point of honour. Yet he was very well able to conduct his affairs to the best possible end, without disturbing himself as to the good or evil which might result therefrom to others. His whole conscience was the law. 
His whole moral code was his rights under the law. He was one of those rigid, unbended probities which never borrow for fear of not returning, and never lend for fear of not recovering. He was the honest man who neither takes nor gives aught, who would rather die than steal a bundle of sticks in the king's forest, but would kill you without ceremony for picking up a twig in his. He was useful to himself alone, harmful to nobody. He took part in nothing that was going on about him, lest he might be compelled to do somebody a favor. But when he deemed himself in honor bound to do it, no one could go about it with more energy and zeal, and a more chivalrous spirit. At once trustful as a child, and suspicious as a despot, he would believe a false oath, and distrust a sincere promise. As in the military profession, form was everything with him. Public opinion governed him so exclusively that common sense and argument counted for nothing in his decisions, and when he said, such things are done, he thought that he had stated an irrefutable argument. Thus it will be seen that his nature was most antipathetic to his wife's, his heart entirely unfitted to understand her, his mind entirely incapable of appreciating her. And yet it is certain that slavery had engendered in her woman's heart a sort of virtuous and unspoken aversion, which was not always just. Madame Delmar doubted her husband's heart overmuch. He was only harsh, and she deemed him cruel. There was more roughness than anger in his outbreaks, more vulgarity than impertinence in his manners. Nature had not made him evil-minded. He had moments of compassion which led him to repentance, and in his repentance he was almost sensitive. It was camp life that had raised brutality to a principle in him. With a less refined, less gentle wife, he would have been as gentle as a tame wolf. But this woman was disheartened with her fate. She did not take the trouble to try to make it happier. End of chapter 10